We started on this the first Sunday of the year, and we're going to wrap it up now. It's been quite the epistle. Uh, there's been so much in it. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've thoroughly uh, have enjoyed it more than I ever have before. Um, and like we say, that one thing builds off another, and the fact that we went through Romans really helps us to understand First Peter. There's things that are in here that if, if we don't know those things, uh, and some of the, the foundational uh, components, then it's going to make this a little bit more difficult to understand. And we've came a long way. Um, one of the themes that we've seen through this epistle is suffering. We've seen it to be that it is not to be considered strange, but that uh, this is coming to His people. We've been called for this. We've been called to this. And that we are to keep our eyes on our home. And we were doing Bible the other day in, in our homeschool on Fridays that one of the <laughs> subjects that I get to head up is Bible. And we had actually started through First Peter. We're going back over it with them. And we talked about the exiles and, and how this, this letter is written to the exiles who weren't in their uh, true home, but they were told to continue to look toward heaven, which is their true home. And uh, how that is something that we need to consider and and to always be reminded of, and we covered verses 5 through 7 today about being humble and humility and God lifting us up and, and casting our cares on Him because He cares for us. And tonight we are going to finish up verse 8 through 14, and um, still a lot to cover here tonight, but my God's help, we're going to do it, and we're going to finish it. So let's pick up in verse 8, and let's read all the way down to verse 14. And then we will work our way through this and close this letter out. It says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through, through Sylvanus, our, brother, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter. Lord, we know that it meant so much to the people receiving it, the exiles that had received it in the first century, Lord, Lord, they weren't in their home, their true home. And these words, Lord, would be comfort. These words would be instruction. These words would find uh, a place of comfort and peace in their souls. And Lord, it's the same with us tonight, that we're not in our true home. We are exiles in this world. And Lord, let us always remember that this world is not our home. We are looking for a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, Lord, where we will spend every moment with you. Lord, help us to be reminded of that. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us into all truth tonight, that you would guide us in everything we say. And Lord, that we would love you more. We would see you more clearly. 
And Lord, that we would take these truths that we're going to hear and apply them to our lives. Lord, we could walk the horizontal aspect of our Christian walk in light of the vertical, in light of you. So help us tonight, and thank you for this letter. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible tells us here in verse 8, it says, Be of sober spirit, clear-minded, if you will, be on the alert. You know, it's amazing that, we, that he would have to mention that in there. Be on the alert. I mean, you would think, if I said to you, hey, listen, listen to me. When you go home tonight, there's going to be an enemy come your way. There's going to be people that are coming your way, and they have one intent tonight, and that is to destroy you and your family. Who's going to bed? <laughs> no one's going to bed. You're going to stand on guard. You're going to be ready because you're going to do everything you can to protect you, protect your family, protect those that are dear to you. And dear friends, he tells us here to be on alert and always be watching because you do have an adversary. And the adversary that he is referencing here in this text is the devil. This word adversary comes from the word where we get enemy or opponent. Now, let's clear up a few things about this adversary so we can ease our mind just a little bit. This adversary that we have is not omnipresent. Let's let that sink in just for a second. He's not omnipresent. Who is the only one that is omnipresent or in all places at all times? It is God. That's what makes him holy. One of his attributes is he's omnipresent, that the fullness of his glory is in every fiber of this universe at all times. And the devil that we so often quote and we cite that he's everywhere, he cannot be everywhere at all times because he's not omnipresent. Let that sink in just for a moment. That's a beautiful thought, that he's not everywhere at all times. However, he does have henchmen. He does have his servants, the demons, who are many places. They are in multitudes of numbers, and they will be there as well. But this enemy, although he is our number one opponent, he is an adversary. He is an enemy. He wants to bring destruction. He wants to devour you. He's not omnipresent. The other thing we need to know about this enemy is this, that he can do nothing outside of the ordained decree of God, that it is this devil who must seek permission to do anything that happens or he does. We see this in multiple places. One of the, one of the most clear places that we see this is in the book of Job, where Job is going to be tested. And the thing that we often overlook is that who was the one who initiated Job's name into this mix? It was God. He said, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Why would he do that? Doesn't that sound strange to you? This is what we talked about last Sunday night. Doesn't it sound strange to you that this loving God, who is, is the God of Job and, and the God that is supposed to be all protecting and all loving, and, and the world sees this and says, well, how could this loving God allow this to happen on his servant what do we talk about? It's not that he doesn't love us. It's the fact that he does love us. Because in the middle of trials, in the middle of suffering, what is the outcome? He's refining your faith. He is purifying your soul. That way you can be more conformed into his image. And you go to the very end of the book of Job and tell me that Job didn't grow in sanctification. Tell me that Job did not see God more clearly. Tell me that he did not have a greater understanding of who God was. 
And if you and I have agreed on this, we talked about it last time we met it as well. Would you do anything to be closer to God? Would you take anything that came your way to be more conformed to the image of God? And we absolutely, before we think about it, we say absolutely. Until it means that suffering comes and trials come. Do you think Job would have said the same thing? Job, would you do anything to be closer to me and have a greater understanding? Look what he lost. He lost his livestock. He lost his children. He lost his house. He got boils. Everything that happened that you could think had happened happened to him. And like I said today, here's the thing we have to remember. The cry of the human heart is that's not fair. But when you read the book of Job, if you're looking for something that you're never going to find, I'll tell you what it is. An apology. He didn't apologize to Job one time. He actually told Job, said, who in the world do you think you are to question me? You see, because we don't know who God is, and we sure don't know who we are. But you see that it was God who says, yeah, listen, here, consider my servant Job. And oh, by the way, here's the parameters of what you can and can't do. You see, this enemy is still bound by the sovereign God that we serve. He is under restrictions by God. We see this also in the, the, the setting of Peter. And we see this where, and we had mentioned it earlier today in our first sermon, where um, Jesus tells Peter, he says, listen, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And we, discussed, we briefly mentioned this. But here's what we need to know, that even though that the devil is not omnipresent, even though that he's under uh, the, uh, the, the, the restrictions placed on him by God, but in himself, he is more powerful than us in our own natural beings. And so many times we overlook that fact. You know what he's telling Peter? He says, Peter, listen, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you, Peter. Wait a minute. You mean almost like the high priestly prayer in John 17? Well, he doesn't pray for the world, does he? He prays for those that are his. I don't pray for the world. I pray for those that you've given me. Can you imagine that scene that, that, that Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you. And if you're his people, in the high priestly prayer, he prayed for you as well. What an amazing thought that the God of this world would pray on your behalf. But he says, Peter, the devil has wanted to sift you like wheat. And here's the ultimate reality. If Peter would have done that on his own, without the restraining hand of God, and it would just have been Peter and the devil, do you know what happened to Peter? He'd have been sifted like wheat. But God had put this restriction. He prayed for Peter. You see, that even though he's under the ordained hand of God, that Satan versus us in our own flesh would chew us up and spit us out. That's what we have to know. And he says, listen, this enemy wants to come against you. He wants to come against your family. And I look back a lot of times and I look back on early sermons and kind of get embarrassed by them. I'm not going to lie to you. And um, we've came a long way in a little over four years. And I hope that none of you ever go back and find ever someone recorded anything of my earlier stuff. Please, don't even go look for it, okay? I hope it's not out there. And I remember one of the messages that I did at the association for the Ohio Association of General Baptists. It was called Life. Do you remember this? Do you remember this? You can't even, I can't even look at her now because this is silly. 
The title of the message was Life Without the Snooze Button. And I thought, the point of that was this. The alarm goes off that the enemy is attacking. We know that he's coming. The world is against us. It's coming against us. It's coming against our family. The alarm goes off, and what do we do? I can tell you what I do when tomorrow morning's going to roll around. I'm going to roll over. I'm going to hit that snooze button as many times as I can get by with it. The alert has been sounded. It's time to get up. No thanks. But that's what we do so often, isn't it? There's a war that's raging against our families. There's a war that's raging against your children. There's a war that's raging against your spouse and this country. It is the work of sin. There's a war. And the enemy wants nothing more than to destroy every single one of us. And what do we do? Hit the snooze button and go right back to sleep. If I were to tell you tonight that when you go home, there's going to be someone come tonight to your house and going to try to take your family, what would you do, men? Would you go to sleep? you grab every weapon you had, and you'd be ready, wouldn't you? That's what's going on against our families and our country and our spouses and, and whatever it may be. How dare we ever hit the snooze button? He tells us here, be of sober spirit and be on alert. Because you have an adversary. And this adversary is the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone who he may devour. What's interesting here is that so many times through Scripture, how is the devil being represented? A serpent, right? Crafty. And now all of a sudden we switch the scene here and we have this roaring lion. What could this have to do? And he is crafty. He is cunning. And one of the things that he does is so well, as 2 Corinthians chapter 11 will tell us, that he can masquerade as a what? An angel of light. It's almost like the, the wolf putting on the sheep's clothing. You see, if we don't know the truth, we're so easily tripped up and we fall for the lie. That's why it's so important to know sound doctrine. That's why it's so important to know the Word of God. Because he doesn't come like we think he comes. We mentioned this before. He doesn't come in this red costume and his, his, his fork and his tail and his horn. That's not how he comes. Wouldn't that be easy to see? You'd see it. You'd spot him a mile away and you'd say, here he comes again. That's too easy. But he comes and he disguises himself as an angel of light. So crafty, so cunning that if you're not careful, he's came and tripped you up. And you didn't even see it coming. You see, we have to be on alert and we have to be ready. But this imagery of a lion, we see this ferocious predator, this one who's constantly on the prowl, this one who's constantly on the attack. When I read this and I began to think about this, we see this reference of a lion in a few places. We, we can go all the way back to Psalm chapter 22, which is a messianic prophecy. Psalm 22 opens with the words that Christ spoke on the cross. It's pointing forward, looking as a prophecy of what will happen to Christ on the cross. Psalm 22 starts with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? And that's what Jesus cried out on the cross. This whole chapter goes on to continue, but there's mention of lion in here. Um, in, we'll move ahead a little bit. Into verse 11, it says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. 
for there is none to help, but many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. So we see this point that when he's on the cross, there's this, there's this mention of a lion roaring and raving at him. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A bound of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They, sta- they look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? At the cross of Christ. But you, O Lord, be not far off. You are my help. Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. Now, if you know anything about what we've been doing for the last two and a half years, you'll know that I believe very strongly in types and shadows. (laughs) Amen. It doesn't take us very long. Have you ever heard of another story in the Bible that could be a type and shadow that just happened to have some lions? Daniel and the lion's den. We know that the grave was, uh, the stone was rolled over and it was sealed in the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And then it came and it was removed back and, and there wasn't a bone injured on Daniel. That's interesting. No bone broken on Daniel, but the ones who got thrown in, their bones were broken. The Messianic prophecy was that no bone would be broken on Christ. So we see the story about him being rescued from the mouth of the lions, and we see that pointing to Christ. We hear this Messianic prophecy of the lions, and now we come here as this roaring lion is being referred to as Satan in this account. He is ferocious, he's on the attack, and he has no good intentions. Seeking someone to devour. So what do we do? How do we, how do we do this? It says, resist him, firm in your faith. Let's stop there. Here's something that's truly amazing that we could stop and we could grasp. That as ferocious as this roaring lion is, as he roars, and you and I become intimidated sometimes, know this, that when you stand in the power of God and you resist him, He flees with his tail between his legs. I want you to listen to this and pay close attention to this, these verses, and tell me if you heard anything about this today. I didn't read this today for a purpose because I wanted to show you how it applies tonight as well, talking about being proud and being humble. Listen to this in James chapter 4, verse 6 through 10. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You've heard that. You heard that this morning. Submit, therefore, to God. Did you hear that today? Submit yourself under the mighty hand of God because he opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, how does this go? How do we get to the point where he's talking about he resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble, and now he's talking about resisting the devil, and he'll flee. 
I think we can ask the question this way. Have you ever, for a moment in your Christian walk, ever got up and thought, I don't need the Word of God today because I got this on my own? You ever do that? I got it. You don't understand. I've grown so much in the last year. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I've got it. This devil, he's not that big a deal. I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's okay. Don't need the word. Let me stand in my own strength. You know what's going to happen by lunchtime? You're going to be a wreck. You're going to have fallen. You're going to have stumbled more than likely. How many times have you got up and thought, you know what? I really don't need to pray to God today. I can handle this all by myself. You see, that seems simple, doesn't it? That seems like, oh, I, I, yeah, that's not that big a deal. Do you know what that's saying? I can do it on my own, and I don't need you. I can handle this. This enemy, I'm good. <laughs> There's nothing they can throw at me. They'll sift you like wheat. Do you know what it comes down to every morning when we wake up? God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. What if tomorrow we got up and said, Lord, what a great service we had today, both services. I, I feel your, your spirit, and I know that you're sanctifying me, and I know I'm closer than I've ever been, but there's no way that I can make it through this day without you. I'm going to humble myself under your mighty hand. It is by your hand that this day has come to pass. It is by this day that all things come to be. Whatever happens in this day is from your ordained will, and I can't do it. I don't care how strong I grow in the faith. I can't do it. God, so let me pour into your word. Let me not cease from praying to you. Not for a moment, God. Let me rest in what I can do. But for every second of the day, let me humble myself under your mighty hand. So that when the enemy comes and when temptation comes and when trial comes, that you will lift me up by your mighty hand. You see, it's little things along the way that we don't even think we're prideful in. You've done that? I've done this. I got it. Don't need it. What's the point of reading every day? What's the point of praying every day? Because you've got an adversary and you've got, you still live in the flesh. And if you're not careful, like Paul says, there's a war that's raging every day. That's what he says. And for us to think that we can stand in our own power, there's nothing more arrogant than that. What arrogance to think that we can do this. You know, when we think about how we resist the devil, do you remember what we talked about this morning? What are we to do with this humility? We're to clothe ourselves with it. Fully clothe ourselves with humility. You know what else we're supposed to clothe ourselves with? The armor of God. The armor of God. And have you ever read the first verse of that whole section? Let me read it to you here. Because it's not like it's not we clothe ourselves with the armor of God and then we go to fight on our own. Let me read this to you. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Doesn't that sound good? But it doesn't stop there. And in the strength of his might. Do you see the difference in that? You don't put it on and then go thinking you're going to fight it. You're going to put it on and fight in the strength of his might. You clothe yourself with that armor. And then 
you still humble yourself under that mighty hand and say, Lord, here I'm in your armor. You've graciously allowed me to clothe myself in this, but I still need you every second of this day. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And when you do that, the Bible says, you humble yourself, you resist him, and he will flee. God has already won the war, the battle, it's over, that Satan has been ultimately defeated. And that's the God that we serve, this mighty hand. You see how that's theological, but then it's also practical? We don't think about it. Every second of our life, every second of our being, every second of our day is to be in a constant state of humility and dependence on this God. And when we don't do that, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. Oh, he gives grace to the humble. Let us be those who he gives grace to. You see, we've got adversary, which is, he's our enemy. We've got slander, which that word, the devil in the Greek, diabolos, means slanderer, that he constantly slanders and lies. But I'm going to tell you what I think one of the most harmful tactics that he uses in that will destroy and discourage and get Christians down is that he's an accuser. He's an accuser. You know, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, says he accuses the brethren continually. And you know what? Have you ever been accused of anything and you know it's not true? Don't you handle a little differently? It's like, how dare you? How dare you say that about me? I know that's not true. You know that's not true. And we can just kind of, we, we handle it different. But what about when someone accuses you of something and you know it's true? Doesn't that hit home a little differently? When you know what they're saying is absolutely true, all you want to do is hide. Because you can't come back against it and say, that's not true. When someone accuses you, even of the most hurtful or horrific things, when you know it's true, it changes things. And the devil is an accuser of the brethren. I want to read you a passage of Scripture here in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan, Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Stop. Who's that sound like? Sounds like you. And it sounds like me. Standing before this holy, perfect, sinless God. Before he comes and saves us, you are standing in the same way. You're standing in these filthy garments. That's what Isaiah tells us. Our garments are like filthy garments, or some translations will say rags. And look who's over at the side. It's the accuser. Look, look at him, Lord. 
Look at Joshua the high priest. Look at him. Look how dirty his garments are. Look how filthy his righteousness is. What could Joshua say? No, they're not. What can he say? Same thing you and I could say when Satan accuses us and what he's accusing us of is absolutely true. Joshua's standing there before God and Satan's accusing. Look at those filthy garments. Maybe Joshua looks down and says, what they are. What can I do? Look what the story continues to tell us. He said, he was standing with clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Is there any more sweet words that Joshua could ever hear? Satan's saying, look at those filthy garments. Joshua says, I know. I have no hope. I have no righteousness on my own. Oh, but then here comes a voice that says, take them off. Again, he said, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. What you've just seen there is a story of justification in our lives. That we stand and we are filthy in our own righteousness before God. And this Satan accuses, look at him, look at that sin, look at that failure, look at that hopelessness. And the moment that we place faith in Christ, those filthy garments, something happens to them. You don't see them anymore because the righteousness of Christ has been applied. You've got a new garment. You've got the perfected, righteous works of Christ that has clothed you and has saved us. You see, Satan will continually accuse us. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, we start to hear the accusations because we know they're true. And maybe these are the things that you've pondered. Maybe these are the questions that, that get put into your mind. Well, you're right. A real Christian would never do that. Wait a minute. I've struggled with this for a little while, and maybe that God really, maybe I'm not. Or maybe God won't forgive me this time. Or am I truly a Christian? Am I tr you see where this starts to go? We have to know. We have to know that he comes to accuse us. God would never forgive me for this. How could he do this? This is something I want to just spend a little bit of time on. What is the difference between the accusation of the enemy and the conviction of the Holy Spirit? What would you say? One is saying, yes, you've done this. Yes, you're guilty. Yes, you've blown it. Yes, it's... They're both accused. The Holy Spirit convicts you that you've done something wrong. And the accuser accuses you of doing something wrong. So how do we distinguish the difference? How do we know the difference? How do we know that it's an accusation of the devil that has no merit? Or how do we know it's the Holy Spirit convicting us? That's an important thing to know. We were talking a little bit about it the last night, I do believe. 
So what's the answer? Well, in short, it's this. The purpose of the accusation of the enemy is to ruin you. That's his number one objection or objective with his accusation. He wants to destroy you. He wants to discourage you. He wants you to never pick up your word again because you think you've fallen too far from God. He wants you to think you're not worthy. You're not. He wants you to, he wants you to think that, you, you've, you, that God could never forgive you on this. He wants to put you in a, in, a, in a season of despair. He wants to keep you out of church. How could you? How could you do that? How could you live like that? How could you do, you're sinful. You've messed up once. How could you do this? No hope. And the list goes on and on. The accusations continue to come. And there's only one purpose with his accusation is to literally destroy and ruin you. Have you ever allowed that happen? Have you ever allowed the accusations of the enemy to discourage you and to bring you to a place of standstill, maybe even regression, where you listen to the accusations and you say, That's, but maybe he's right. Maybe he's telling me the truth. You mean the father of lies telling you the truth? And if we're not easy, if we're not, if it's very easy for us to be ruined. Do you see that? Can you experience that? The accusation of the enemy is to ruin you. But you know what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is meant to do? To restore you. Not to ruin you. The Holy Spirit's job in convicting you is not to ruin you. And as painful as that process may be, as many tears there may be shed in this conviction process, be thankful that God is convicting you. Because where there is no conviction, there is no Holy Spirit. One of His roles is to convict you of sin. You see, the devil wants to accuse you and bring this weight to your mind to ruin you. But the Spirit of God in conviction is to do what? It's to grow you into the image of God. It is to rid you of sin. It is to sanctify you more and more and more to be conformed in His image. That's what it's there for. As painful as it may be, at the very end of conviction, do you know what you'll find? Sweetness. Oh, you'll find sweetness. Because this God who's brought conviction in your soul is not to ruin you, but it's to conform you more into His image. Do you see the difference in those two? So when you can't tell the difference, you say, is what I'm hearing now trying to ruin me? Is it trying to destroy me? Is it trying to trip me up? Is it trying to get my mind off the Word? Or is it trying to conform me to the image of God? There's a huge difference there. The enemy tries to ruin you. Your God who loves you brings conviction to restore you. And oh, if that's not good enough, he will still continue to bring accusations to you. It's the truth. There's never, he's never going to stop. May I go to Romans chapter 8, please? Because that's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Romans chapter 8, talking about the accusations of the devil. I was going to start in verse 33, but you know what? We're really close to the golden chain. 
Might as well throw that in there too. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what what we're conformed to do. That's what we're called to do. And that happens by conviction. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And then Paul cannot contain it. After hearing that in verse 31, what does he say? What shall we say to these things? And listen to what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's been taken out of context so much it's not even funny. This is talking about the intercessory work of Christ. If he's for us in justification. He goes on to say this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, you ready? Who's going to bring a charge against you? Satan's going to try. He's the accuser. He's going to come and he's going to try to accuse you. He's going to lie to try to levy a charge against you. But do you know what's going to fall on? Deaf ears. Listen to this beautiful text of Scripture. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? (laughs) What a question. Satan's going to try. But listen, God is the one who justifies. The grand, supreme authority and judge of all the universe, if you're a believer, in the moment of justification, has taken the universal hammer and the universe's ultimate hammer and gavel of authority, and he has declared it to his people. You're righteous. You are righteous. And I'm the supreme ruler. I'm the ultimate judge. I'm the supreme court of this universe. And if I've declared you righteous, there's no one who can ever bring a charge against you. Do we grasp that? I don't think we truly do. I don't think the church worldwide really understands that. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that He will justify us as long as He lives. So, just in case you want to know how long He's going to justify you, forever. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is is He who died. Rather, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, the elect. He's interceding for you. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Yes, we love because He loved us first. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing's going to separate you from His love. Nothing's going to separate you from His intercessory work. Nothing's going to stop Him from interceding for you. Yes, there is something. I'll take that back. Him not being God. That's what it would take. It would take him to not be alive for him not to intercede for you. Go home and rest easy. He's going to intercede for you forever and ever and ever. So that Satan can bring the charge. Satan can bring the accusation. But you see that no charge will ever be brought with any merit. 
in behalf of God's elect. Because you're clever in His righteousness. And it is God who intercedes. So He will continue to attack you. But we have to be able to understand, to go back to Scripture and say, I don't think so. I don't think so, Satan. And let me tell you what my word says. The accusation of Him will try to devour you and restore you, or ruin you. But the Holy Spirit, as painful as it is, is there to restore you. And there's a sweetness on the other end of it, isn't there? Isn't there? And when He brings you through those moments of repentance and disciplining, it's for your good. Verse 9, He says, But resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. He says, listen, you're not alone. Remember what we've talked about, that we are called for this. We're called to suffer. We're called to this. Those who are in Christ, they will suffer persecution. It is not strange. It is necessary that these trials come to refine us, to discipline us for whatever the purpose of God is. And he's telling these specific people, these chosen exiles who are in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, he's saying, listen, yes, you're going through trials and struggles and suffering, but listen, it's not just you. It's, every, it's everyone across the... Uh, the world. It's everyone. And same goes to us. And, and sadly enough, when we think we suffer persecution, let us just stop for five seconds and look across to the other side of the world. We don't know what persecution and suffering really is. So yes, you're going to go to work tomorrow and you may be a little razzing from your co-workers, but at least you're going to keep your head. He's saying, listen, guys, Stand firm and know that you've got brothers and sisters all across this world who are in the same fight that you are, looking for the same inheritance that you are. They're exiles too. They're not in their true home. I was trying to explain this to Anlin and Coop the other day, and I said, yes, kids, we live here. we got a mailbox that says our name on it. Yes, we have mail that comes to us. Yes, this is your house here on earth, but this isn't our home. Our home is waiting for us. That's the same it's the same thing of every exile, every Christian in this world. We're exiles. We're not home. Not yet. But we're to keep looking. He says in verse 10, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What's interesting here is that Peter says, After you've suffered for a little while. Now we know that God's time and our time is totally different. We know that with Christ, one day is like a thousand years and vice versa. And that little time may seem like a long time to us, but in the scope, in the comparison, in the perspective of eternity, it's no time at all. It's nothing. It's like Paul says, these light and momentary afflictions. Okay. Let me tell you this, Paul. What you think are light and momentary, when I read them, they don't look so light, and they don't look so temporary. Think about what all that the Apostle Paul went through. But do you know what he knew? He was looking to heaven, and he knew that life down here was so brief. And he says they're light, and they're momentary. What is he saying? He's also the one who wrote in Romans 8, 18, who says the sufferings of this present world, they can't be compared to what's awaiting us on the other side. But when you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, He saved us by grace. 
We read a few sermons ago that He gives us gifts by His own grace. He helps us in our trials through His grace. And it's this God of all grace. Do you know what this God of all grace did? He called you. Mm. He called you. Some would dare to say this is the effectual call. I would choose to agree. You know, those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. He called you. And what did He call you to? His eternal glory. That's true. Because if He calls you, He justifies you. And if He justifies you, guess what? He's also promised. Your glorification. He's called you. That's the effectual call of the shepherd to the sheep. The sheep hear His voice. The sheep know Him and they come. He's called you to His eternal glory. You see the theme, how Peter's ending this? Listen, He's called you into this trial. He's called you into this heartache. He's called you into all the things that come to pass. He's called you to something greater than that. He's called you to His eternal glory. Look up. This is not your home. How many times has He told them in this epistle, this world is not your home, keep looking up. Keep looking up. Stay firm in the faith. He's called you to His eternal glory. The God of all grace. And then look how he ends verse 10. He himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I wrote a few verses here. We'll read these really quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 through 22. It says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Yes, that same Holy Spirit that He establishes you with, He seals you with, and that's a guarantee that you will be in heaven. And I don't want to call God a liar. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, So that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all His saints. Look who's doing the work. Look who's doing the establishing. Look who's doing the strengthening. Jude 24 through 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 says, who will also confirm you to the end. Wait a minute. Whoa, did you catch that? That one snuck in on us, didn't it? Who will ensure that you are confirmed all the way to the end? It is Him. You see, it's Him. It's Him. It's Him who does the work. It's Him who we are to give thanks. He will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, the through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, if you're His people and He's called you into this, He's the author of your faith, He's the finisher of your faith, He's the perfecter of your faith, what He started in you He's going to complete. He's going to keep you blameless and holy before that day because He's covered you in His righteousness. He keeps you from stumbling. It is Him who will strengthen you. It is God and God alone who gets the glory. You know, just in case... You needed to hear this. Not only is He the God of all grace, He's the God of all comfort. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, the God of all comfort. 
really briefly, what has been the response in these epistles and Romans? And we've given some examples of this. When, when the glory of God just gets elevated and you see the transcendent beauty of who he is, what is, the, what is the response of the human heart that has been changed? It's to bust out into doxology. Remember that? Doxology is where we get the word doxa, which means glory. It's where we give God the ascribed glory that's due his intrinsic glory. And look what Peter's just saying. This God who's called you into this is the same God who's the God of all grace. He's the God who's going to strengthen you. He's the God who's going to confirm you. He's the God that's going to perfect you until the end. And Peter's coming to the close. In verse 11, he busts out into doxology. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm with Peter. When I start to hear those things, my heart just wants to explode. I start holding on and moving back a little bit. This is my typical move. I start to kind of get back and I start to feel it a little bit because it's the praise of God that wells up in the soul when you know that it's about Him. To God be the glory. To Him be dominion forever and ever. And dominion means sovereignty, control, or authority. And I've written verses here that you can go back and look about, about His dominion. One I want to draw your attention to is 1 Timothy 6, 15-16, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, which no one has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then if you want to go to the throne of God in Revelation chapter 5, you will see that there's dominion there as well that is being proclaimed in the name of the Lord. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. It says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Around the throne, you see, it's the dominion of God. It's the authority of God. It's the sovereignty of God, which 103 uh, in Psalms will tell us his sovereignty rules over all. He's winding us down with the glory of God. To Him be all the praise. Let us never be worried as Christians that God is not in full authority and control of every second, of every day, of everything that happens. It is His dominion forever and ever. Verse 12, he says, Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, so I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Most commentators will agree that this Sylvanius is going to get translated out to be someone that you may have heard before, especially in the book of Acts. It's an individual that you know as Silas. You heard of Silas? Silas was one who accompanied Paul in some of his missionary journeys. 
We see this primarily in Acts chapter 16, where we know that Paul and Silas were in prison. They were in stocks, and it came about midnight, and they began to sing. And we know the doors flung open, and the jailer there said, What must I do to be saved? Because if everyone escapes, if one soldier or one inmate escapes, what is due is his life. He's terrified, and he says, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord God. This is the same Silas. And most, a lot of commentators will say that he, here Silas, either was like Tertius in the book of Romans, who maybe was like a secretary writing it for Peter, or that he was going to entrust this epistle to Silas to deliver it. Not sure. But there's mention here um, that it could possibly be both. Not only that he would handwrite this letter, but also be the one to deliver it. We don't know that. Uh, but a majority of commentators think and believe that this Sylvanius translates into that name, Silas. And he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We're going to go to the Ligonier Conference in a very short period of time. And the theme of that conference is stand firm. It is by grace that Christ has set you free. So stand firm in that freedom. Verse 13 says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, she who is in Babylon, if you look in antiquity, um, one of the words and the ways that they would write in code and the way that they would describe a certain place was using the word Babylon. And in antiquity, the name of the place that they were referring to when they referenced Babylon would have been the ancient city of Rome. So when you see she who is in Babylon chosen together, this is more than likely a reference to the chosen people, the elect of God, the church that is in Rome. Most scholars will believe that Peter is writing this epistle from Rome. She referencing the church. She who is chosen with you in Babylon or Rome. We're thinking about you. Look what it says. Send you greetings. This is what the majority would believe this to be, that he's saying, hey, the church, the chosen people in Rome, which to where I'm writing from, we send you greetings, we send you regards, and to know that we are with you and thinking about you. And he says, so does my son Mark. Now, this is interesting. Who's Mark? I know a Mark. Not the same Mark. Most scholars will say this is John Mark. Where have we heard John Mark? John Mark was the one who went and accompanied uh, them in some of the missionary journeys in the book of Acts. He was also the same John Mark who deserted and left them in Pamphylia. He was also the same John Mark that when the second missionary journey came to pass, Paul said, I don't want him going with me because he's left me. He deserted us in Pamphylia. I don't want this same John Mark. I don't want this guy. And Barnabas is like, I want him. And Paul's like, I don't. And it said that there was a great uh, dissent and there was a uh, dissension in the ranks there and there was conflict. And that is what happened, how that Paul ended up teaming up with Silas and Barnabas ended up partnering with John Mark. And then the next chapter would be Paul and Silas in prison and so on and so forth. Oh, in case you don't know who this John Mark is, if you go to Matthew, and then you turn to the next book, 
John Mark is Mark, who was given the privilege of writing the gospel according to Mark. Talking about a God of second chances, huh? He deserts his fellow people on a missionary journey. Paul says, no thanks. He would come later in the ending of Paul's life in 2 Timothy. He says, go bring me Mark. Talk to Mark. He's been helpful to me. They had resolution. And Mark has been entrusted by God to write the gospel according to Mark. Not the gospel of Mark. It's not Mark's gospel. It's the gospel according to Mark. And why is, he says, he's my son, my son, Mark. Well, we see this also the same language when Paul is talking to Timothy. It's a spiritual son, Timothy, my son, in the faith, not true biological son and father. And this would make sense because most early historians, uh, I had written down here, there was an early church father named Hippias. He was from 60 to 130 AD, and some of his early writings attested that the majority of information that Mark had received came firsthand from Peter, that Mark had received a lot of his information from Peter. And that would make sense here that Peter is calling him my son and has made reference to him. Just little intricacies in these letters that I find so amazing. And then we come to verse 14, the close of this epistle. Greet one another with a kiss of love, and just in case you are concerned, that was an old (laughs) greeting back in their custom, which we don't have to hold fast today. So ease your mind, unless you want to. (laughs) What's it, the French? Both cheeks, is that what they do? I don't know. Let me tell you this, you come at me like that, I'm going to give you a handshake. (laughs) That's the truth. But he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. You know, I I look up at verse 7, and I couple that with verse 14. Don't be anxious about anything, but cast your cares on Him in peace to you who are in Christ. You know, Philippians 4, 6-7 says this, Be anxious for nothing. We're to cast them, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about who this letter is written to exiles, told that sufferings are going to come. Do you want peace? We, we have, you ask people, oh, I'd do anything to have peace. Oh, my heart has no peace. Well, here's a sad reality, that there's not one unbeliever in this world who will ever have peace. Isaiah tells us there's no peace for the wicked, not one bit. And if you're a child of God, then the Prince of Peace has saved you and rescued you. And it's this God who in the middle of suffering, in the middle of heartache, in the middle of joy, in the middle of anything, He's the only source of peace. You're never going to find peace in anyone else. You're never going to find peace in any other thing or activity. They have just been handed this letter and it says, suffering is coming. 
And then he ends it with, but the peace of God to you who are in Christ. How do we have this peace? How do you have peace in the middle of suffering, in the middle of this crazy world as you're living as exiles? You have it from God and God alone. There's no other source of peace. I want to draw your attention, if I can. We'll end with these few verses, I promise. I want you to go back to the first chapter of 1 Peter. It says that there's peace to those who are in Christ Jesus. This world is is chaotic in the world's eyes. Sin is running rampant. We know we're the minority. We know that this is not our home. But the peace we have is not of this world. It's the peace that passes all understanding. It's the peace of God. And I want you to draw your attention how we can have peace. I just want to read the first few verses here where we started. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, as exiles, so are we, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. It's the elect of God. How are they the elect of God? Listen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's where we started this thing at. And we've came a long way. Three months later, we've come to the end. And the same ones he's talking about at the start, who were chosen by God, sanctified by the work of the Spirit, and he'd been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. It is those who by that God of grace, that act of mercy, no matter what comes in this world, the same message applies to the last sentence that he writes. That it's only by this God that you can have the fullest measure of peace. We're not home. We're not home. Don't find it strange when trials come. Consider it a blessing that He's testing you and trying you and purifying you. And we're to encourage one another when our steps become less and less and they're harder to take. We're to wrap our arms around the brothers and sisters in Christ and say, don't give up, but keep looking up. Because if you read a little farther in verse chapter 1, it would say this. It's you have an inheritance in heaven that is being guarded for you. But here's the best part. You are being guarded for your inheritance. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. What a letter this is. Lord, we know that it had to bring such comfort and such peace and such hope in the middle of these exiles wandering on this earth. 
Lord, we know that it had to do that. We know that these words are inspired by you. They are God-breathed. And Lord, just as we read what you wrote to them, Lord, we know that it applies to us as well because we are not home. We're exiles as well. We're looking for our, our real home, our true home. So God, let us keep our mind on you. Let us keep our eyes on you. Let us keep our head looking upward to our home, to our inheritance, to the living hope that we have that is in you and you alone. Father, how could we ever thank you? How could we ever thank you enough for who you are, what you've done? It is you that has saved us. It's you that's rescued us. It's you that's confirmed us. It's you that's strengthened us. It's you that keeps us from stumbling. It is you, God, and only you. So therefore, we are humbled, God. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And Lord, we thank you. Lord, let these words that we've let, read in this epistle strengthen our lives, strengthen our walk with you. And to know that all the trials in this world, they cannot even for one second compare to the glory when we take our first steps home. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.